0: Father, we thank you that in everything you have the preeminence. You are the Lord, the God of the universe. You are our Lord, and we're able to uh, come to you with the needs of each and every day and to, even more than that, come to you with thankful hearts and with the praises of our lips for all that you are and all that you have become in our lives and all that you are enabling us to be. We recognize that your purpose in working in our hearts is to make us more and more like your Son. And so, Father, we would submit to that working, even though sometimes we know it is very painful. We trust that you will strengthen our faith. We trust that as we study your Word today, you will speak directly to our hearts. No matter what is the passage of Scripture and what may be the topic, you are able, by the power of your Spirit, to touch us in a point of our need, and so we submit to that today. We ask, Lord, that you will be blessing in each class, that uh, each teacher will feel your empowerment, and each student will uh, hear your voice speaking. And bless the service as it is uh, being carried on concurrently, that your, uh, your will and purpose will be accomplished there. And we'll thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read this morning in the 30th chapter of Exodus. Yes, if anyone doesn't have an outline, Elma will give you one. We've been on it for a couple of weeks. 30th chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, of fragrant cane 250 and of cassia 500 according to the shekel of the sanctuary and of olive oil a hin and you shall make make of these a holy ointment anointing oil perfume mixture the work of a perfumer it shall be a holy anointing oil and with it you shall anoint the tent of the meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils And the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them, that that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister as priests to me. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured out on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a layman, shall be cut off from his people. We have a similar situation here to the altar of incense and the making of the incense that was used to be burned on the incense altar. A particular formula was given by God to Moses there in the mountain, and that particular formula was to be unique. In this case, we're talking about an anointing oil, which was to have the particular formula that we read about this morning. And the point of this passage is, in part, that they were not to profane this particular a combination of anointing spices. It was not to be used in common use. Its exclusive use for anointing the priests was for one particular purpose. And that was to remind the people of the holiness of God and, and to instill in them a sense of awe. You and I are very familiar with the attitude that most Americans today have towards God. And that is uh, one uh, in which God is pulled down to kind of a common level. Uh, the name of God is used profanely throughout our society, and not just our society, of course, but it's very commonly used throughout our society, in a profane way. Many people tell all kinds of jokes about God, and they just have this attitude that if there really is a God, he's, you know, just kind of a, a good old guy up there who wouldn't harm a fly, you know. or or an attitude that, of course, that God is purely legendary and is the figment of of imagination. And that's just the way the human mind tends to think. I mean, Satan in the very beginning challenged whether God was really what he claimed to be, and that's been his challenge ever since. He's been trying to convince us as people that we don't really need a a holy, awesome God up there but that we're really pretty good ourselves, and, and we actually probably are close to divine, if not divine, ourselves. And so I think it's really, really important for the Israelites to be made aware again. I mean, remember, they're coming out of Egypt, a land where multiple gods were worshipped, and none of them were the God of Israel. And, and we don't know in the 400 and some odd years that they were in Israel how far they had come away from the root of their faith. We're not told anything about, really, the nearly 400 years after the death of Joseph before the birth of uh, Moses. What went on in those hundreds of years? How far did Israel come away in their thinking from the worship that Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph had had? And so it would be pretty easy for them. In fact, we're going to see as we get into the next chapter how quickly it is uh, how, how easy it is for them to move away from faith in the God of Israel. So anything, anything that would remind them of who God was, and that he was separate, that he was holy, that he was consecrated, and anything having to do h- with him was to be consecrated, was important. Now, In this particular passage, we're told four spices, myrrh, cinnamon, cane, and cassia. Now, myrrh is pretty common. It's mentioned uh, often in Scripture. It's even mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Cinnamon, uh, you know, whether it's the cinnamon we know today or one of the other varieties uh, is not certain, but at least we have a concept about that. But uh, for the other two, cane and casia, we find that um, this is kind of an uncertain, these are uncertain commodities. Cain is thought to have been the extract of a, herb by the genus Calamus, which at that time was supposedly a product of Asia and is known today to grow in southern Asia, and so probably would have been in the trade of of that particular ancient world. There is, as I said, a plant today called Keisha that is grown in uh, in India. Some commentators think that Keisha was aris root, which is a plant belonging to the genus Iris and thus uh, more of an annual plant, or actually iris is a perennial plant, but more of a bulb-type plant. But whatever the case, whatever cane was, whatever casia was, whatever we might know it to be today, if we even know it in its existence today, the Scripture is telling us that a compound made of two of these was a double amount and two was half the other two, We have about 16 pounds, that's what those figures add up to, about 16 pounds of of this spice mixed with about a gallon and a half of olive oil. A hen was about a gallon and a half of uh, liquid. Uh, Together, this would be mixed to produce the anointing oil. Now, I think it really needs to be uh, emphasized that there was nothing holy, especially holy about olive oil. There was nothing specially holy about myrrh or cinnamon or cane or acacia, nor even the combining of those in this particular ratio. They were only holy because God so ordained them to be. There was nothing in and of themselves to make them holy or special. This is, of course, something that uh, Satan has already worked on uh, throughout history. And that is to try to convince people that there are certain things that you do if you say certain incantations or if you do certain things or mix things together in a certain ratio, you're getting into the supernatural, you know, just by nature of what they are. But that's not true. The supernatural aspect comes because God proclaimed this to be holy. It could have been any combination He chose, but this was the particular combination. And for them to mix it in this combination would be a direct violation of his order, not because if they put together it was going to go poof, you know, and suddenly a genie would pop out or some such thing. It was purely because God had proclaimed it to be a holy combination, a holy formula, to be used for one specific purpose. Now, we already read the the last verses of chapter 30 when we dealt with the Incense altar, so we will not look at that again. Let's move to chapter 31. Chapter 31, the first few verses here. Now, Moses, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you and the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat upon it, and all the furniture of the tent, the table also, and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering also, with all its utensils, and the laver and the stand, the woven garments as well, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, with which to carry on their priesthood. The anointing also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. Can you imagine Moses' dilemma? He's been on the mountain, and God has been speaking to him, and God has been giving him these long instructions, and he did not have a laptop there to just kind of punch that all in there, you know? It was, it was coming to him, And and God was, of course, going to give him the facility to remember, but Moses was the prophet. (laughs) Moses was a shepherd. Moses was not a craftsman. Moses didn't know how to make, manufacture things in gold, at least as far as I know he didn't, in silver or wood or anything else. And I'm sure he was beginning to think, oh, Lord, (laughs) I'm having an overload here. I don't know exactly how this is all going to work out. How in the world can I put this together as you want it put together? I need help. Now, did he voice that prayer? I don't know. But one of the things that we are told in Scripture is God knows your need before you voice it in prayer to Him. In fact, He knows your need before you even know your need. And God is there to meet that need. So but that, that's what this passage is about. God is coming to Moses in the hour of his need before Moses has even, at least as far as we know, verbalized a prayer to God expressing his need. I think Moses was feeling overwhelmed with the impossibility of accomplishing all that God had commanded. You know, we can feel that way too. You pick up this book and this is God's word to you, it's God's word to me, and it's full of commandments, it's full of promises, it's full of what God, of instructions that what God wants us to be and to do and we can look at that and say oh god how can i do this you know H- how can i just just read the 12th chapter of romans you know especially the last ch- half of that chapter and whoa you know it's like a wind blowing in your face at hurricane speed and what we have to realize is god gives us the strength to do these things one at a time and as the time in our growth process arrives for that new factor to be built in. Moses was certainly overwhelmed, but God knew his need. And so God encouraged him by saying, you're not alone in this, Moses. I have chosen two men who are going to be the supervisors of all this work. These are men in whom I have placed my spirit to enable him to design and to supervise and to make all these things that are required for the tabernacle worship. Now, personally, this is my opinion. I think that God didn't just, you know, throw a dart down there and pull somebody up and say, all right, this guy's going to be in this. In this. I think he went through in his own mind and, and chose two men who, first of all, were amenable to his spirit, who were not rebellious people, but people who wanted to serve God and who already were talented in these directions. They were already oriented in these directions. They already had some skills in the directions in which they were to supervise and in which they were to design. God builds into you and God builds into me certain capacities, talents, skills, whatever they may be. And I think God uses those as we give ourselves to Him further his purpose. Now I'm not saying he can't give us a skill out of the clear blue sky that we never had any concept of having, but I don't think he normally works that way. I think he takes us where we are and puts us into his program with what he has already enabled us to be and to have and to do. And it's, uh, you know, it's a great blessing, I think, for us to find that what we really want to do And what we really feel we can do, God will enable us to do in his power and by his strength and for his glory. And that's his plan and that's his purpose. And so he tells Moses that, I have chosen Bezalel of Judah and Aholiab of Dan. And these men are to be the overseers of all of the others into whom I have placed the skill or I have uh, encouraged the skill to do the craftsmanship that is going to be needed, to build the tabernacle, to, to make all these gold works. Can, can you imagine what it's like? I, I just can't even imagine how it can happen. How can you make a wooden box? I, I can understand how you can make a wooden box. I could make a wooden box. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> might be good enough to ship something in, but maybe not to uh, you know, be an altar. But then to sheet it in gold and, and to not have it look like it was, you know, in a, in a what do you call it, a hailstorm from all the hammer hits, you know, from trying to flatten out this gold. You have to have a skill, you have to have a talent, you have to have a knowledge. And certainly God enhanced all of this so that they could produce these items. I think they were beautiful. I think the menorah, the golden lampstand was a gorgeous thing to look at. I think the Ark of the Covenant was, was absolutely splendorous. Is that a word? Splendid, for sure. And that, that uh, all of these things were magnificent in their production. I, I think it was the finest that human hands could produce with the anointing of God's Spirit. They weren't just funny little things that somebody who was half a primitive pounded out and you could sign up and say well yeah i think that's a little shovel <laughs> you know that was used to empty the ashes or something no i don't think there was any doubt about it with god's empowerment these men were going to be able to meet the exact specifications that god gave He told exactly how uh, large the Ark of the Covenant was to be, exactly how large the bronze altar was to be, exactly how large the tabernacle was to be and where the curtain was to be hung, the first curtain and the second curtain and the tabernacle courtyard. All of this stuff was made very specific by God. And these men were able to follow those specifications perfectly. I don't think this should really be a surprise to us because I think... Most of us, if we've walked with the Lord very long, have come to the, to the realization that no matter what God asks us to do or asks anyone to do, it can only be done the way it should be done with the empowerment of God. I don't care what it is. If God has asked us to do something, it can only be done right with His empowerment. It cannot be done right in just our own native skills. I don't think any of us has the skill good enough to do what God wants done the way God wants it done without his help. I don't care how good someone is. I don't think that can be. And, and whether the work is small or whether the work is great, it will only be done successfully in the power of God's spirit. You, we all know the passage in Philippians 4 which says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now the scripture tells us that in our flesh there dwells no good thing, which means that by our own flesh we cannot do God's will. It's not possible for us in our own flesh to do God's will without his spirit. And that's what God is saying here to Moses. I will empower these men. They will do the work perfectly. It will be supervised as it is supposed to happen and it will happen exactly as I've outlined it to be here on the mountain. I'm sure that was a great relief to Moses. I, I think that he it, it felt like a giant weight fell off his shoulders when suddenly he realized God was going to do something besides just tell him what to do, that God was actually himself empowering others to do it. Let's read it, verse 12 of this same uh, chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people." For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, But on the seventh day he ceased from labor, and he was refreshed. Now this is, of course, not a new declaration. God has already given this declaration as he gave the Decalogue. But he is now restating it. He is reiterating the fourth commandment here to Israel through Moses. And he is declaring that the keeping of the Sabbath will be an eternal sign of the covenant that God has established with his people Israel. So the emphasis here is upon the fact that it was a sign. It was a sign that God and Israel had a covenant together, that God had proclaimed this covenant actually unilaterally, but Israel had accepted the covenant in declaring that they would do all that God had commanded them to do there at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, God had already given a a sign of the covenant, and that sign was the sign of circumcision. But as we well know, the sign of the circumcision is a private seal, a private sign. But the keeping of the Sabbath was to be a public seal, a public sign of who they were and of their dedication to this covenant to the living God. It was to remind them because it happened every single week. It would remind them of their covenant. The next day is the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath mean? It reminds us of our covenant with the living God. And so they couldn't forget. And they couldn't turn away from the reality of that covenant. And it also was a testimony to the non-Israelite people. When they would come by and they say, Whoa, what, what are you people doing? How come nobody's working today? <laughs> Well, because this is our Sabbath rest. This is our, the sign that we have received from God of the covenant that we have with the Lord our God. And this would give them an opportunity, of course, to tell them about Yahweh, the Lord their God. And, and as they obeyed this down through the centuries, of course, all the neighboring people would be aware that Israel was a different people. They weren't like all the other pagans, but they were a people a covenant people who proclaim their commitment to Yahweh through the sign of the Sabbath. And then at the end of the chapter, we have this interesting little verse, the 18th verse. And when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Now, it's important for us to note that everything we have read so far, all the way from the 20th chapter of Exodus, where the Decalogue is given to now, has not been something that's been written down in stone. This has been oral communication given to Moses. Moses then would be later inspired by God's Spirit to recollect all that God had given to him, and then he would pen it down. But in stone was only the Decalogue. What we know as the Ten Commandments. That was what was written in stone. Because if all of this was written in stone, he'd have to have a truck to bring it down off the mountain. God is finished giving Moses instruction on the mountain. And so God gives him these two stone tablets in which are inscribed the law, the heart of the greater thing known as the Torah. Now, we have an interesting phrase here. It says, written by the finger of God. Well, as you probably know, there is a heretical group that within Christendom who likes to believe that God has a body and that uh, God is nothing but uh, Adam blown up to you know big size and that all the references in Scripture to head and arm and finger and eye of God are literal and that God really has a head and an eyes and fingers. Uh, But it doesn't take very long as you study scripture to realize that these are all what we know as anthropomorphisms. They are simply statements made so that we as human beings can comprehend what God is doing. It's like when, when Belshazzar is having his great feast and they're all praising the gods of stone and gold and wine and they're drinking from the golden implements from the temple in Jerusalem, this big old finger comes and inscribes in the, in the wall there of, uh, of the palace. I mean, that's what he saw. He saw a hand carving in the wall. But is that God's hand? Well, it's, it's what God used to do that from their point of view. That's what they saw. And what this is saying here is that it was as if God had used his finger to carve this out, but God is a spirit, we're told uh, very clearly in Scripture. Uh, it refers to the direction action of God here in preparing this stone and in cutting it loose from the mountain. Now, does God have to have a hand to do this? God have to chisel out of there? God just says, no, happen, and it happens. You know? God spoke the universe into existence. He hasn't any problem cutting out some stones and carving some words in them. Why did God use stone? Why, why didn't God just have Moses sit there and copy it down on a piece of parchment or a piece of papyrus or something? You know, they probably had papyrus with them that they brought out of Egypt. Certainly they did. That's what Moses wrote the whole Pentateuch on uh, later on. So why, why didn't God just say, hey, bring, your, bring a scroll and, and a pen and a quill. You know, so, I mean, come on up the mountain. I've got some things to say to you. No, God didn't do that. I think Moses went up with any preparation to write anything down. God carved these words in stone and put presented him with these stone tablets for the purpose of illustrating that this is my permanent law. This is the immutable word of God. There's something about, you know, we, we all say, well, you know, it isn't carved in stone, you know. What do we mean when we say that? Well, it can be changed. It's something that, well, you know, we can pass another bylaw and make a change. The implication is if it's carved in stone and it's forever, it's permanent. And, of course, that's exactly why God did this. Let me read a verse to you from uh, Psalm 119, that wonderful psalm that talks about the Word of God. In uh, the 160th verse of Psalm 119, we read these words. The sum of thy word is truth. (laughs) That's a powerful little phrase. The totality of what God has said is truth with a capital T. And every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. Every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. God is not like Congress. You know, passing a law, and then a few years later, passing a law to countervene the first one or to cancel the other one, God's laws are not subjected to some kind of Supreme Court decision either. Our Supreme Court may rule on moral issues, but they are not the ultimate voice. God is the ultimate voice. And when God put his word in stone, it was for Israel to know that this is the unchanging word of the unchanging God. Hear it and obey it. Don't try to change it. Don't try to put little clauses in there, you know, to, to modify it or to water it down. Now, the question is, how big were these stone tablets? We've all seen the uh, Sunday school pictures, right, of Moses carrying these these things down the mountain. How big were they really? Uh, We know that Samson was able to rip the door off of Gaza and carry it up to a mountaintop, but this is not Samson, this is Moses. Well, the scripture doesn't tell us how big these tablets were, so we can only speculate. But we do have a couple of parameters to work with. One is that these tablets were going to have to fit into the Ark of the Covenant, And the Ark of the Covenant is a very small chest. So first of all, they couldn't be bigger than the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so we know they had to be of a certain size. And secondly, (laughs) Moses was going to have to carry these things off the mountain. So obviously we're not talking about a couple hundred pound tablets here, you know. I mean, Moses may have been strong, but I don't think he was that strong. How big of a tablet do you need? The... Decalogue in Hebrew can be inscribed in fewer than 200 words, Hebrew words. And what we're also told is that the tablets were inscribed on both sides. I don't know, have you ever seen the, the Ten Commandments film? And Moses up there, Charlton Heston is up there in the mountain, <laughs> and, and this big fire comes, whoosh, it burns. And you'll notice that it, it burns it in two tablets, but only on one side. It doesn't show it being put on both sides of the tablet. But the scripture clearly tells us that. Let me just read the verse to you. It's in the 32nd chapter, the 15th verse. That Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. Just in case you didn't get it the first time. <laughs> both sides means written on one side and the other. <laughs> you notice how God is. God is very specific. One of the principal challenges to Christianity in the first century was a religion known as Gnosticism, or a heresy known as Gnosticism. And one of the things the Gnostics emphasized what that, was that God and what he said was very mystical. And you could only know it if you knew the secret words. And if you had the, the right mantras, they didn't use that word, but uh, you know, if, if you knew the secret, then you could find out of the mystery of God. But if you read through the Bible, God is very plain. In fact, he spells it out once, and then he spells it out a different way. And then a few chapters later, he repeats it. That's one of the most fascinating things to me about the, new, the Old Testament is the truths you find in the New are already, have already been given in the Old. <laughs> Every one of them is given in the Old Testament. And, and so God tells it once. He tells it twice. He tells it three times. He yells it. He puts, whispers it in a little, quiet voice. I mean, whatever way, he speaks it. And if we don't get it, it's not because there was a mysterious word we missed along the way. It wasn't because uh, it was beyond us. It was because we didn't pay attention. We weren't listening. I think probably the tone, stone tablets weren't probably anymore, any bigger than, yay, you know. Maybe a, a cubit at most, but probably maybe even smaller than that. And who knows? Not too thick. Thick enough so they wouldn't break easily, even though Moses did break them. But I don't think he was gentle at the time he broke them. So, you know, I think that's about what it was. Well, what are the Israelites doing while Moses is up the mountain? They're down there praying intently, right? Massive prayer meeting for 40 days and 40 nights. Supporting Moses on the mountain. Right. Chapter 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, notice the word, delayed. What are you doing, Moses? Moses. How long does it take you to get this word down? The people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought... Notice how quickly they disclaim him, you know, this Moses guy. uh, The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings. I I hate that word. I prefer take. Take off the gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people took off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Moses. And he took this from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Well, I hate to use the trite phrase that when the cat's away, the mice will play. But kind of fits here as to what these people were doing. How quickly did they forget the vow they had made to God? I mean, they had stood there at the base of Mount Sinai with their hearts filled with fear and awe as that mountain quaked and roared and thundered and lightning and smoke and fire, and they witnessed this this thing. They were standing at the base of it. And, and Moses brought this word down from the Lord, and they said, everything that God has said, we will do. So what are they doing now? Well, I think we have to witness the fact that this is spiritual warfare. These people stand down at the base of the mountain. We're not down there alone. They may have thought they were alone, but could they have seen into the uh, spiritual realm, they would have noticed there was a swarm of demons all over the place there. I think Satan personally was there. Where else would he be? This is where God was working. And so Satan was there with all of his minions, and he was going around going, you know, talking about this guy Moses, a lunatic up on the mountain, you know. And just putting doubt into their mind as to the reality of everything that they had heard and everything that they had saw, seen, and the work that God had been doing. They took their eyes off of God. This is one of the profound examples of Scripture of people taking their eyes off of God and looking at their circumstance. I mean, we always refer to Peter, right? Gets out of the boat, walks on the waves, looking at Jesus, walks fine, looks at the waves, ploosh. Well, this is all over again here, only this is, of course, before. If Peter could have remembered this passage, he may, might have uh, thought more carefully about what he was doing. But here they are, They've taken their eyes off of God, and they're considering their circumstances. Now, if you had been amongst two million people out in the Sinai desert, you were escaped slaves from a land that now hated you, Uh, you were supposed to be going to a land you'd never been to before, and you've just heard about, you're out in this desert area. I mean, they're not in the Garden of Eden here. They're out in the desert. The Sinai is a hostile place under normal circumstances. I think I'd be afraid, too, if all I thought about was my condition and my circumstances. And how are you going to feed and drink all these people and all these animals out here in this desert? How are you going to do that? Life was very tedious at best out here. You have to remember, what were these people doing? They got up in the morning. They did their routine, whatever it was. You know, Maybe some had to watch a few flocks, watch the kids all day. But what were they doing? Nobody could go to work you know, to chew up eight or ten hours of the day and get, keep them out of business, I mean, out of trouble. They, they were just, you know, kibitzing amongst themselves, and, you know, the guys were probably all meeting, and the gals were meeting, and they were all talking about how awful it was that this guy Moses had abandoned them here, and, and what are they going to do now, you know? They're not welcome here. They're not welcome there. They've already uh, fought off an enemy. What is going to happen to us? The wilderness offers very few of the necessities and none of the luxuries of life. Worst of all, their brilliant, charismatic leader was gone. He disappeared up into that smoking mountain, and we haven't seen him for nigh on to 40 days and 40 nights. We have no idea what happened to this man, Moses. For all they knew, he was dead. After all, they had been told not to even touch this mountain. The only persons authorized onto the mountain, you remember, at one time were the 72 elders plus Joshua and, and Moses, and then later only Joshua and Moses, nobody else, not even an animal, was to touch this mountain. They felt like sheep without a shepherd. They were in a hostile land. And, you know, in the flesh they had little reason to hope for the future. This is not going to be the first time that they remembered the leeks and the garlics of Egypt and the fish that they had left behind. They're kind of like a mountain climber who is climbing up this really steep and dangerous mountain. Now, as long as that mountain climber keeps his eyes on the summit, he can forge ahead, but when he stops and turns and he looks around and, whoops, you know, several thousand feet of sheer drop down there below, suddenly it's possible for that person, and this has happened so many times, to be petrified, unable to move scared to death of the reality now of clinging on this bare rock with imminent death facing them and uh, staring them in the face, unable now to move on, which they were confidently doing before. And that's what's happening to Israel here. They've taken their eyes off the goal. They've taken their eyes off of God. They've forgotten their promise. So they went to Aaron. After all, Moses had designated Aaron to be the man to, to run the show while Moses was gone, and so they go to Aaron, which was proper. And, but they said, uh, make us an image of God so that we can be comforted because we'll be able to see him and that he will lead us to safety. You ever struggle with that maxim of the, of the Reformation that the just shall live by faith? You know, one of the great cries of the Reformation was, faith alone. Faith is a hard thing. I was just thinking about that the other day. You know, God wants us to, uh, an unseen God wants us to live by something that is intangible, faith. And yet we are people who live in a world of tangible things. We we, we live by our senses, you know. Empiricism is so important to us. What we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we touch, what we taste, impacts our knowledge and, and this whole idea of, of believing in something that we've just been told or we read somewhere, but we've got no tangible knowledge of, of it. It's hard, especially you know, in, in us people who have been profoundly impacted by the age of reason and all that has come since that particular time. And so I think we could be sympathetic with Israel, put ourselves in their sandals for a moment. I really don't think we'd be very different now, of course, we have the whole scripture, and what we know now in our hands, that would be one thing, but realizing they didn't have any scripture. They didn't have one word of scripture except what they heard Moses speak from God at the base of the Mount, of mount Sinai. And, of course, what they had heard about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the word that God had spoken to them, which would be carried around orally, they, they had heard that, but they had nothing else to base their faith upon. So I don't think we should be really too hard on them. Hard on them. Why did God keep Moses for so long in the mountain? Did it really take God 40 days and 40 nights to tell Moses everything? Well, I, I think in part God was testing Israel. He kept Moses up there for the express purpose of giving Israel plenty of time down there to prove who they really were. He was testing them and they flunked royally. I don't think that everybody individually thought, oh, where's this man Moses? I want to find another God and follow him. But there were some leaders. There were some impatient people who probably, after Moses had only been gone a week or two, were already beginning to you know, talk, to gossip about, hey, Moses is gone. Some who probably didn't follow him real willingly to start with. There are always people who said, would say, hey, I could do this job <laughs> as well as he can. Some, I think, thought maybe Moses had actually been killed on that mountain. I mean, it was a horrible fire raging up there and smoke and thunder and lightning. How could anybody live in that? So I think they thought Moses may have died up there or else he had wandered off. Maybe, maybe he just forgot what he was doing and went off somewhere else, you know. Maybe he thought, hey, I don't want to lead these people out here anymore. Well, whatever was their belief, Moses had not come back And the longer time passed before Moses came back, the more the rumors had credibility. See, I told you yesterday, right? No Moses. A week later, see, I told you last week, no Moses. Faith was based upon sight. Out of sight, out of faith. They had seen Moses. They saw the miracles. They saw the mountain. And even though the mountain was still there, Moses was gone. You know, when you see a very spectacular sight for the first time, it just holds you transfixed and you stand in awe of it. But five weeks later, the same sight gets a little old. You know, some of that awe is gone, so the mystery is gone. It's whole hum daily routine. Look up at the mountain. Oh dear, still up there. You know, go on through daily life and if our faith is based on sight, we're in big trouble. They had not yet learned to trust the Word of God. The Word of God. They saw no evidence of His presence other than this mountain up there, but that wasn't speaking to them anymore, and neither was Moses. And they felt that at best they had been abandoned, and at worst, maybe they were subject to a whole series of illusions. God knew that Israel could not conquer Canaan unless they trusted and obeyed the Word of God And unless they trusted their leader, be it Moses or Joshua, they had to be people of trust and faith. And he knew that this was part of the process. They were going to have to learn this. And you know, I don't know about you, but I think most of us learn it the hard way. You know, faith doesn't come easily. We just say, oh man, I just believe God for everything and I go joyously through life. No, I think all of us are hitting brick walls frequently and wondering where God is and why he's left us in this situation and why he didn't open this door and why he shut that door and, and why he didn't hear my prayer and does He even hear my prayer right now. We all go through that. And this is part of God's test of Israel. Well, let me just uh, sum it up to say, and I want to emphasize this next week, in spite of the fact that their faith was it's basically Zero. I mean, it's got to be pretty low when they say to Aaron, make us a God and we're going to follow it. Now, I think in Aaron, Aaron, you know, is trying to uh, cover this over here a little bit. He's going along with it, but you notice he says in, in, uh, in verse 5, he, he makes an altar and he says, and tomorrow we shall f- make a feast to the Lord. So he's kind of covered this thing over here by acting like as if this, this image is actually an image of God, you know, God somehow in this image. But I think what we need to recognize through all of this, that God does not just come boiling down off that mountain like he could have and just barbecued the whole lot. God does not reject them. God takes them where they are and moves them on to the next step. You flunked test number one. Moses is going to come down from the mountain. He's going to come down with the Word of God. Moses is alive. My Word is alive you're going to be sent to test number two and test number three and four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Now there will be some who will flunk the test to the point that they will die in the desert because they will refuse to believe God and go into the land. And God says, all right, you guys are going to wander around out here until the whole lot of you from 20 years old and upward are dead out here. Then I'll take the other ones in. But God does not reject his people just because they fail. Just because their faith is weak or maybe seems to totally evaporate. God does not reject his people. But God gives us another opportunity to believe, to trust, to learn, to grow. And that's what life is all about for all of us. I think if we're really honest, we'll have to admit that we've been like Israel too many times. But God has faithfully brought, brought us through to this spot today. Well, well, we'll pick up with that next week and uh, look at a couple of scriptures from the New Testament that are helpful.